welcome to Tech in the City. And uh, I'm gonna introduce our, our panelists. So right up front here, we have Monica Nicholsberg, who's gonna be our moderator today. She is GeekWire's civic innovation editor. She covers technology-driven solutions and uh, urban challenges and the intersection of tech and politics. And before joining GeekWire, she was a producer on the week's digital team in New York City. Uh, next up, we have Nikita Oliver. Um, who many of you probably know as uh, her recent run for mayor. She is an artist, educator, attorney, and community organizer, and she ran uh, as a candidate of the Seattle People's Party just in our recent election. Uh, next up, we have Heather Redman. Uh, she is a fearless advocate for inclusion and diversity, and she champions Pacific Northwest startups from her many leadership roles including as a co-founder and managing partner of Flying Fish Partners, a venture capital firm committed to funding early stage technology companies in the Northwest. And then lastly, we have Aaron Terrazas. He was previously an economist in the US Treasury Department's Office of Economic Policy, and he's now a senior economist at Zillow. He has a master's in applied economics with a specialization in economic forecasting. So let's give a round of applause for our panelists. So quickly, we just want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, without uh, whom none of this would be possible, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and our business track sponsor, BECU. So with that, I'll hand it over to Monica. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for being here. I want to start out, since it's very early, um, engaging the audience with a quick poll, but don't worry, all you have to do is raise your hands. <laughs> so raise your hand if Seattle is your hometown. That's a lot, all right. Raise your hand if you're a transplant. That's even more. What about our panelists? Which of you are from here? Raise your hand. <laughs> I'm not either. So the reason I wanna ask that question is because Seattle is growing faster than any other city in the country and a lot of people are driven here by job opportunities. We talk all the time about some of the consequences of that growth. Housing costs are rising, our roads are increasingly congested. But Aaron, I know that Zillow has done some research into the deeper meaning of what this tech boom, of its significance in Seattle. So beyond the obvious, obvious, what can you tell us about it? Yeah. Um, is this on? Great. Um, yeah, I mean, so at, at Zillow, you know, we obviously have an economic research team. We, we do a lot of um, analysis about housing markets around the country and particularly on, on our hometown, Seattle. Um, and so we have looked at the jobs boom that Seattle's experienced over the past half decade at this point, decade even, um, and what it's done to the Seattle market. So, you know, if you look at the transformation that has happened in, in South Lake Union in particular, um, that neighborhood, you know, has gone from about, you know, uh, 5,000 jobs a decade ago to, you know, uh, many times that today. Um, and unsurprisingly, the neighborhoods that are, you know, most popular with those people who have worked in South Lake Union have seen um, much faster rent appreciation than, um, than other parts of, of the Seattle area. So in, in particular, the neighborhoods that are most popular have seen rents grow twice as fast as neighborhoods that are least popular with, with people who work in South Lake Union. Over the past um, five, six, seven years, Seattle rents have gone up by 50%. Seattle home values have doubled over, over that period. Um, now this, this, this panel is, is particularly you know, about one of the drivers of, of, of that, that job growth about, about Amazon and its kind of growth in, in that particular neighborhood. 
when we looked at uh, the relationship between growth in the number of Celtic union workers in any given part of the city uh, and what has happened to rents across those different parts of the city, that jobs boom explains about 16, 17% of, of what's happened in rents across the city. So, so there's no doubt that you know, adding tens of thousands of people to the city's um, housing market has, has certainly pushed up rents. Um, there are a lot of other things happening in Seattle other than what's happening in South Lake Union. Um, other companies beyond Amazon are, are growing in this region. Um, you know, people are attracted here for reasons beyond jobs, for a quality of life, or, or um, you know, to be close to family. For instance, you see, um, you know, retirees moving to this area to be, to be close to grandchildren. Um, and, you know, a critical part of this conversation is how um, difficult it, add, it is to add new units to, to the Seattle market. Seattle has some of the most um, restrictive um, kind of supply constraints in the country, and that plays a big part in how fast or slow the housing market is able to respond to any type of, of growth. So I, I, I guess, I don't know if that answers your question, Monica, if that summarizes a little bit of, of the transformation of, of what's happened in, in Seattle. No, it definitely does, and, and I wanted you to set the stage in that way because I am curious what responsibility, if any, the industries that are driving this growth have to mitigate some of its consequences, like rising costs of housing. Nikita, you have any thoughts? <laughs> I feel like that was directed at me. <laughs> what gave you that impression? <laughs> um, you know, I think we're really at a, a huge turning point once again in our, our history loop. It, this is not the first time that we've been here where you have an industry that is booming and developing in a way that it's actually having an impact not just on its particular market, but on other markets and impacting the quality of life of people living in that space. We saw this with sugar, steel, railroads. Um, there's a reason why we have antitrust laws. And so um, I personally think that uh, corporations, especially in light of the way that the law treats them, we treat them as citizens, uh, or we treat them as people, as individuals. And so uh, with each of us as individual citizens, there is an idea that we will be civically engaged, that we will um, be servants to the place that we live in, and that that expectation that we not only mitigate harm, but that we do no harm. We're not supposed to harm each other. That's a legal thing. We've made that decision, that contract with each other. And yet we haven't built the same expectation for corporations corporations while simultaneously allowing corporations to be treated as people. And so uh, I do think that we have to begin to ask ourselves what responsibility do industries have not just to mitigate their impact or also their harm, but to actually think about that in advance of how they grow. The internet is still kind of a new thing. I know we can take it everywhere with us, but the way in which Amazon has developed to been able to use the internet um, and buy out other industries, but also essentially build a city within a city um, is, is sort of a, it's not a new thing, but it's new in light of the sort of technology we have to do it. And so I do think it is our responsibility to be forward thinking about um, impact and harm but also investment. So when I think about HQ2 and all these cities that are uh, putting in our, are responding to the RFP uh, with tax breaks, my question is actually what lessons have you not learned from what has happened in Seattle? Um, and really what they need to be doing is uh, letting Amazon know how they would like Amazon to invest in their city and their space. Displacement and push out is a very real thing. 16 to 17% of the market is huge when we think about impact. That is a huge impact for one uh, 
corporation to have. And so um, forward thinking would say that as HQ2 begins to develop, that cities should actually be banding together not to compete with each other for who can give the biggest tax breaks, but actually to compete with each other who can build the most human, most uh, city beneficial plan for how Amazon gets to be a part of their city as opposed to taking over their city. Heather, did you want to respond to that? I would, I would love to. Um, I'm not sure my mic is. Is mine on? Can you guys hear me? Oh, is mine on? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, I love the uh, the theme that you have of engagement, Nikita, and I think that's one of the really great things that you've brought to the overall civic discussion um, here in the region. And I think you're also very correct on the idea that it's not about tax breaks; it's about investment. Um, in the, on, with my business hat on, uh, so I'm a venture capitalist, so I fund young startup companies for a living. What we think about is what is the, um, the infrastructure uh, of a region to support that new sort of growth and that new job base. And so for Amazon, I've always thought, and I don't have any inside information, but I've always thought that what they're really looking for in this whole RFP process is not the basket of tax breaks. I do think that has come up when they've made warehouse uh, location decisions. And uh, there was a great article in The Atlantic about that recently that you know, I'd love to hear Amazon's take on it. But um, in terms of really looking at this HQ2 and also in terms of their continued investment in Seattle, I think what they're looking for is where can we have the most talented group of people sort of homegrown but also attracted here. Um, so when I think about the interaction of all of us and a large company like Amazon and a city government, I think about how do you really engage and try to become sort of um, uh, uh, mutually beneficial. And also in the, in the course of that, really looking around the corner, both to what are the impacts that a, a major growth of a large company is going to have, but also what are the, uh, what's, what's the next generation problem going to be? Like right now we're very focused on the impacts that all of this tech growth has had on Seattle, but if you look around the corner, what's happening now in the corporate world is there's just incredible and very quick change, and it, it's change that occurs much more rapidly than infrastructure or ideology or politics can really react. So if you look at, you know, for instance, the stat that I love is that the Fortune 500 used to be something that you stayed in uh, for an average of 67 years. You know, this was like 50 years ago. Now it's 13 years. And if you look at sort of who's the largest company, that's continually turning over. So, you know, GE, who we thought of as this monolith, is now kind of going down the tube. So the change factor is really huge. And so when I think about what are the threats to Seattle, it's not so much the impact that Amazon is having today, but what is the impact if we aren't able to continue to supply great jobs um, to people from a more diverse job base? And, and so when I think about what I would do if I were an HQ2 competitor, I would be making my case to Amazon based on my educational system, which, by the way, needs a lot of improvement in our region, a lot of improvement, my transportation system, the um, diversity and equity that I have in my community, my ability to add housing rapidly, which we also could do a better job at, um, and not tax breaks, because I think ultimately that's not the thing that really provides the fertile ground for a thriving economy or for 
uh, a, a company that is trying to stay ahead and trying to stay in the S&P 500 um, for longer than 13 years. I, I mean, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I think it's really important for cities to make that case. But Amazon did say many, many times in its request for proposals that it wants government incentives. And Jeff Bezos is you know, reported to have picked Seattle in part because of its tax structure, because it doesn't have an income tax, and because at the time, Amazon sales were only taxed in Washington, and Seattle had a relatively small population compared to other cities. So it's hard to feel like they aren't asking for that. And I'm curious, from any of you, whether it's whether cities should be in the business of doing economic development, and if they are, if that has to come in the form of incentives. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is part of the um, highly portable nature of business today. I mean, businesses, I mean, we're, we've been fortunate with Boeing that it is very infrastructure dependent, and um, therefore it's continued to have a footprint here. But I think if you were to look at the history of Boeing, um, they would say we keep looking at, you know, what's going on in Washington State, and we look at, at the uh, regulatory environment, we look at the cost structure, um, including um, tax structure, and we find that we have more attractive opportunities elsewhere, and we're competing against Airbus. Um, so it's that, you know, sort of harsh reality that if we want to compete against Airbus, we have to continue to look at costs. And, and that is, you know, a, a feature of, of today's system that, you know, I certainly don't know a way around. Um, the, the bad part about technology companies is they're not very infrastructure dependent. And they are very dependent on talent, but talent is also, you know, the millennial mindset. And we have a, a crowd here that skews quite a bit older than Seattle. You know, we're now the most millennial city second to Brooklyn in the country. Um, so this is an older crowd, and it's also a more native crowd. The, when I talk to a tech audience, the number of people who are non-native is you know 95% and the number of people who've moved here in the last five years is you know 75%. So this is a very different audience than, than uh, Seattle um, from a tech lens. But the, um, the uh, mobility of millennials, the mobility of these businesses that all exist in the cloud mean that the tendency of them to be able to you know pick up and, and move someplace else is is quite profound, um, which is why you know I like the business that I'm in from sort of a pro social standpoint because by taking that talent and giving it an opportunity to do something different if it chooses to and providing capital to start a new young company that could be the next Amazon or the next Zillow or you know the next Expedia whatever um, that allows us to have more diversity in our economy and to keep that great talent that we've either homegrown and, and want to keep here or that's been attracted here from all over the world, which I think is, is great for us as well. You know, um, I would actually say that we shouldn't be offering these kinds of tax breaks uh, for a number of reasons. One is we've created a sense of corporatocracy. Um, I actually feel like in some ways Amazon has superseded um, our government's regulatory system in the sense that because they are so big and in so many industries, they can put out an RFP where cities compete with them, uh, compete for them by actually offering them tax breaks that really we should actually be trying to close those loopholes. Um, in our state, we are missing out on 
billions of dollars that could actually be used to make our infrastructure more robust, transportation, education. I mean, part of our education issue is actually a funding issue. And so by continuing to give tax breaks to uh, large corporations like Amazon, uh, we're actually hurting our ability to create equity. Seattle talks about itself as a progressive city, as a city that desires to create equity. And when we look at who's not benefiting from the growth in our city, it is highly racialized. Um, we, we usually talk about it as an income issue, but that income issue crosses with race. And it takes government regulation to roll back the tide on uh, inequities that were actually created by government rec regulation, right? So. Um, when I look at the HQ2 cities, if they don't take, uh, learn some lessons from what happened in Seattle, the sort of displacement and inaccessibility that they're going to see is actually going to perpetuate itself along race and gender lines, which we see happening in Seattle. And it's only going to be through some amount of government regulation, uh, and I hate to use the word enforcement, but that's what it is, to ensure that the tech industry does not remain um, an industry dominated by white men, but also, uh, and this is one of my struggles in Seattle, we talk about the tech industry as if it's diverse because there are some API communities that are really benefiting from it. Uh, a lot of Southeast Asian folks have moved to Seattle um, because of the ways in which we've allowed the tech industry to, to structure itself, which then allows the tech industry to talk about itself as if it's diverse. And so uh, black folks, native folks, and um, uh, Latinx folks continue to be kept out of not just the tech industry, but also the housing market in our city. We are literally building a city um, with the tech industry that's becoming wider, wider and wealthier each year and not acknowledging that we've missed out on some really important opportunities to build pipelines. How do we incentivize um, the tech industry to see that there is value in uh, homegrown talent, but also because we have allowed an inequitable system to be perpetuated for a long time? Uh, we have to be willing to build pipelines that uh, that work for populations that have been historically held out of um, a lot of different industries. That's going to require not a and not a tax break. It's actually going to require taxes being put on. And and Amazon has ducked and dodged that. Boeing, I do think, is an interesting example of that because there was a time when Boeing was very invested in making sure that black and brown folks got access to the industry. And that is what made Boeing an attractive company for Seattle and the state of Washington to continue to kind of work with on that tax breaks. I have not seen Amazon offer anything that makes me want to see them get additional tax breaks because they have not built substantial pipelines into communities that are being <coughs> kept out of tech and are essentially in our city being displaced by what tech is doing. And so um, I personally would need to see some more investment. Investment, I think, is the key word. And uh, creating equity within the tech industry for me to want to see Amazon get any more sort of tax breaks. Otherwise, we are participating and creating corporatocracy, which uh, allows Amazon to kind of live above our governmental, you know, what we've agreed as citizens, we're all going to be willing to follow these rules. I mean, we may not be in a while, because look at our president, but, um, you know, that's where we sit down. I, I wanted to also um, riff on that a little bit. I mean, first of all, I, I did want to make it clear, because I think this is a, an urban myth, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I don't, I don't think we've actually given Amazon any tax breaks here in Seattle. Um, so we're, we're talking about the hypothetical HQ2 and Monica's point that we have a low tax environment generally. Um, so just, just to be clear, because I think that's one of those things that people talk about a lot. Um, the, 
the interesting thing I think about this town is the, the, the need for these pipelines. And, and I think the industry increasingly, particularly as we move into artificial intelligence and machine learning, where everyone is really focused on having a very broad and diverse data set, I think that we're at a really good point for this town to lead on diversity. Um, we have had some strides. We've closed the gender wage gap a little bit over the last couple of years, which may just be a result of, of um, you know, lower uh, unemployment. But we are, ch we are closing that but we're not doing it for women of color and we need to we need to uh, double down on that particularly in the tech industry there are with growth there's an opportunity to create pipelines and um, we aren't doing enough, I think, on the public school side, and that's one of the reasons that we have so many uh, affluent children, including a lot of white children, going to private schools. We really need to get our schools um, back up to the level where everybody, regardless of income level, wants to send their kids to public schools, so we have that mixing of, of income levels and, um, and backgrounds of all sorts, you know, really in one environment, because that's how you really bring up the educational system. And I totally agree with Nikita that dollars are essential for that. Uh, and then that's a great place that I think everybody wants to, to invest in. The corporate world has supported investments there as well as in things like transit and, and housing, et cetera. Um, the other point I wanted to make is that, again, trying to look around the corner, which is a little bit my job as a venture capitalist, we are about to face you know, an even greater disruption than we've ever faced before. If you look at what happened with um, the Industrial Revolution and then the shift from manufacturing to services, we're now about to face, because of artificial intelligence and machine learning, this huge shift to automation. And we're expecting, at least according to McKinsey, who's a pretty respected researcher, we're expecting 30% job lost in about 15 years. And that's across the board. It hits the, um, the mathematical and computer science industries at about 20%. It hits uh, manufacturing probably at 50%. Um, a lot of the jobs that we think of as the ones that we've you know, worked hard to get up to the $15 an hour minimum wage are also affected. Um, some of the jobs that are not are also low wage, like nursing and, and well, not nursing, but um, home health care and that kind of thing, You know, assisting people, uh, particularly in the aging process. So that's going to hit everybody. I mean, that's, you know, doctors, lawyers, et cetera. It's not going to be um, limited to what we thought of when, um, when uh, manufacturing to service work occurred. Um, so there's, there, are, uh, there are bigger threats and, 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 and bigger um, concerns looming on the horizon, which makes education and equality and inclusion all the more important. But we're all in this together. And one of the things that I like about Seattle is that I feel, you know, notwithstanding some of the issues that we have whenever we have a political campaign and whenever we get into a heated debate about something, we do have a pretty good pool of shared values. And the companies that are the major employers here, a lot of those CEOs were born and raised here. A lot of those CEOs, if they weren't born and raised here, have very Northwest values. And, and I feel like there ought to be a way to um, really be a leader, you know, sort of worldwide here in Seattle on tackling some of these problems in a way that does look around the corner and looks beyond today's issue, which is housing, homelessness, transportation, hitting all of us 
and addresses those issues and, and it requires all of us to address those issues because of course density is mostly, I, I think, a, a, a solution to a lot of the, um, the issues with affordability, but it's all of us wanting our single family neighborhood to have its integrity, quote unquote, that prevents that density from occurring. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we need to just you know, adapt in our own lives, but we really need to be looking at what is the next challenge as opposed to being singularly focused on today's challenge. And we need to also be thinking, how do we do this together? How do we treat Jeff Bezos as a peer as opposed to some sort of boogeyman and, and treat him as somebody that does have essentially the values that we have but needs to be in a dialogue with us and needs to do his part? So just add a couple of things. Um, uh, I, I think that not taxing, uh, in my opinion, is a tax break. So while we maybe have not uh, applied or have we haven't said we won't apply this tax to you. There are tons of taxes that we could apply to not just Amazon, but multiple corporations in our city and our state that we've chosen not to. An example of that is the corporate head tax that there was an attempt to move through the Seattle City Council um, and then use those funds exclusively to build housing because of our, our housing crisis. So I would say not taxing is a, is a tax break because it's a choice. Um, but also, you look at our last election, and not just because I was a part of it, but because uh, you know, understanding the role that corporate, large corporations like Amazon play in our election, they donated $800,000 to the PAC that supported Jenny Durkin, the candidate least likely to pursue any sort of additional taxes on corporations um, in our city. And so one thing that I see and this is a much larger discussion, but is also Amazon's investment in ensuring that the political climate in our city remains one that is more conducive to them being able to remain in the sort of tax structure that we have, um, which prevents us from getting that additional funding that goes towards infrastructure that means we end up with impact fees that can address the school and transportation issues that are becoming very relevant in our city. Um, and you touched on a really important issue, automation is huge. Uh, I think of technology like fire. Uh, fire was once really great technology. Someone was happy it was invented. But the thing about fire is you have to use it in a responsible environment. You learn what it burns, you learn what it burns up, you learn how it burns, you learn how it gets out of control, and then you find ways to ensure that our use of fire is one that does no harm. Um, I think of automation in the same way. I read an article this morning because I've been talking so much about Amazon that my Facebook algorithm has changed. Um, <laughs> But I know it's crazy, uh, uh, right? I read an article this morning about these new wristbands that they may put on warehouse workers uh, who work for Amazon to kind of direct their movements more efficiently to meet some time requirements. That sounds like a very stressful work environment, by the way. Um, and that is one step closer towards automation. We now have the grocery store in South Lake Union where I think you can go in and you can take things and it's not stealing because it automatically charges your account. That's great, right? It's my dream. Um, that is also another step towards getting rid of jobs where, uh, one, you actually have to interact with service industry people, uh, but two, also getting rid of uh, the jobs that a lot of low-income folks or, you know, to once was college students worked uh, before the recession. And so I think... Automation and technology also comes with a responsibility. Um, safety is one thing. So Walmart just bought a whole bunch of Tesla trucks that will self-drive themselves, and they're testing them um, because they say it's about safety. It's really about time efficiency and how much money they can make. And so we are really at this, this moment in history where we're asking ourselves, is automation about making jobs safer, or is automation about increasing 
uh, corporation's bottom line. And we do live in a capitalist system, and yes, I'm a socialist, but that's okay. Um, don't be offended. Uh, I think we have to ask ourselves when it comes to automation, is this like fire? Are we going to decide at what point we're going to contain it and it's helpful for making jobs more safe, for ensuring that products are better, or is it just about the bottom line? If it becomes just about the bottom line, it becomes a fire that just burns everything up. And so we have to be willing to, uh, y'all remember when they were cloning sheep? I was in like fifth grade, it was great. Um, but people were asking about stem cells and cloning, are we afraid about people cloning actual people and all the impacts of that, there was a lot of scare about it. I think we should be having the same fear right now about auto automation and having very intense conversations about what regulations are we willing to put on automation to ensure that we don't move into a world where Seattle becomes this tech haven where trucks drive themselves, you can go into a store and pick up what you want, you don't have to see the service industry people, we end up developing rapid transit where you can rapidly get workers in and out and wealthy folks can live in the city who work in the tech industry and the rest of us live in the slums on the outside of the city because we've got become so automated that unemployment is 40 percent i mean that is a plausible future if we aren't willing to put some constraints on how we're using this automated fire that could in theory burn down all the infrastructure of our city and put us in a very different setting where people don't have health insurance, don't have jobs, don't have access to clean water or healthy food. Um, and maybe that sounds very dystopian and like I watched way too many movies. Um, but I do think it is a plausible future if, if we don't get a hold of things now. I think that most people would agree that we are speeding toward that future, that automation is a reality that is happening now and it's going to increasingly happen. So. What does it actually look like to protect people from that? Like, what are some real things we can do now to plan? Yeah, I guess I, I feel like, you know, obviously a, a lot of automation has occurred already, right? I mean, we got washing machines, so now we're not at the river with the rocks. And, you know, there are, you know, automation is on a continuum. What we're talking now about is, is replicating human intelligence. And, and what we have, what I think, uh, you know, makes us all a little queasy is this idea that, and instead of just your, your arms and your legs, now your brain is going to be something that can be replaced by a machine, right? And, and so, um, you know, I, I totally agree that we need to think very hard about that. And I think uh, the tech community as a whole is thinking very hard about that and thinking about things from the... Um, from, from a, a wide spectrum, everything from, a, you know, a lot of people are talking about a universal income because they do believe that a lot of jobs will just not exist in the future and we'll still have a population that needs to be able to, you know, read books uh, comfortably and, you know, some sort of dwelling as when they don't have anything to do work-wise. Um, and, and that we will also um, need to address things like, uh, uh, um, Elon Musk's, you know, sort of horror story of the, the robots are going to take over and, you know, put us all in a little farm or something for, as pets or whatever. You know, again, I've Batteries. watched too many movies too, yeah. Um, so there's, there's a, you know, a wide range of concerns. Um, you know, and I've, I've heard uh, like Mark Benioff, who runs Salesforce, one of the biggest companies, very, really progressive, good company uh, down in California, you know, has talked about, well, you know, social media is highly addictive, so we should think about regulating it similarly to how we regulate cigarettes or something else that's highly addictive. You know, so there's a, a wide spectrum of, um, of perspectives and, and ideas of, about how the, how the tech community needs to start thinking about itself in a, in a more regulated environment. Um, that said, uh, you know, to me, what 
unless we can control the whole world, um, at the at the end of the day, what we're dealing with is a highly competitive environment where if if we don't allow our companies to innovate, you know, in a regulated environment for sure, but in, if we don't allow our companies to innovate, if we try to sort of say, stop, we don't want you to have automated trucks because that would mean truckers were out of a job, we are fighting the, the sort of the progress, the tide of progress, and China will have trucks that are automated and will sell them to our corporations. Um, and or becomes just so much, so much more efficient that they'll you know they will have an economic footprint that we can never compete with. So I think what we need to to talk about again is this idea of education and opportunity and how do we make sure that that we have a safety net, a social safety net, portable benefits, whatever it is you know that really works for people, but also. Um, allow people to continue to look at what they do for a living in a different way and open up those doors of opportunity. I mean, we've, I'm on the board of the Washington Technology Industry Association and we've got a great apprenticeship program that's just been launched with the help of, of Washington State funding. And we're really getting a lot of new people, veterans, women, people of color into tech jobs as a result of that. So things like that, it's a small effort so far, but it's, but it's a pilot. Um, and we've just got to do more of that all the time because people like me, you know, venture capital is going to be automated too. So we all need to be continually thinking about what's what's the next thing we're doing or how do we create the social safety net so that there is a place for all of us uh, in whatever the future brings. And if it's only 15 years out, we better be thinking about it sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I mean, so on automation, I, I agree that anytime you have a new technology, it is important to have those conversations around kind of what does this mean for us as a society when, you know, cars first came to or, or into existence, you know, streets and horses were every place and cars hit people and horses and there was no organized system for that. So we had a social conversation as a society and said, okay, we're going to, you know, put lines in the streets and, you know, have rules around where we park. So I, I do think those conversations are important. If you look back at the history of automation, you know, all of the evidence suggests that, you know, people and technology are complements to each other. We, we, you know, people who use technology and can work with technology are in the best position to adapt and to um, kind of advance because of the opportunities that technology creates. It all comes back to this critical question, how do we sure, ensure that um, lower income communities, communities of color have access to those skills, have the, you know, the knowledge and opportunities to get jobs that you know, allow them to adapt to technology? So it seems like everything keeps coming back to education and this ability to create a talent pipeline that includes everyone. I read after Amazon Go opened up the convenience store that you mentioned that allows you to go in and not steal stuff, but also not pay at a register. Um, I read that Jeff Bezos made more than $2 billion in Amazon stock when that launched. So how do we as a government or a society say, put that $2 billion into Seattle public schools? Like how do we create this connection? I'm not a lawyer. That's a lawyer um, question. You know, so I, I first want to say, like, I very much love technology. I think there are sometimes when I speak to tech audiences, tech folks are going to be like, she hates technology. It's like, no, I love technology. It's great. It's done, in, it's done incredible things for the movements that I'm a part of. It allowed us to develop, to develop systems where we can communicate what's happening in the BLM movement, not just in the United States, but globally. It's allowed us to... Um, 
where there's always been evidence of harm against communities of color, it is now very visible evidence. There is no question that these things are happening. Um, it allows us to organize in a very effective way. Um, my struggle is, is our values. Even when we think about pipelines of access, it is still very determined by um, a system of inaccess. By that I mean, white folks still have kind of the dominant, white and wealthy folks still have the dominant role in it, and black and brown folks and low-income people are still hoping that maybe we can get on the pipeline to technology. Um, I think we need a value shift, one where we look at everyone's value and need to contribute to our society for equity as a part of just what we do. Yes, Jeff Bezos made $2 billion um, off of opening a new store. Do I think we should force him to invest all of his money into Seattle Public Schools? No, but I do think we should be culturing, 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 you know, like growing, a regulatory environment where we say our value is investment in our society as a whole, not in a particular segment. And that is a much bigger historical issue um, that tech cannot deal with on its own. So I'm gonna finish here because I see the time sign. Uh, Joaquin Garrett said at a, at a panel that I, that I uh, heard he was on, was talking to an Amazon executive and said, Amazon's issue is not that Amazon does technology really well and has developed this incredible corporation. Amazon's issue is that it only sees technology and its particular segment of the industry. Its lack of diversity makes it so it does not have eyes for a bigger picture of society. And so what groups like Amazon need to do as they expand their headquarters is be willing to bring in folks who probably have a very drastically different worldview and experience, not to just be included, but to actually get to lead the way that that company functions. That will begin to transform the way that Amazon actually invests in the cities that it's in, and we won't just be looking at black and brown and low-income folks who are displaced as pipelines into the organization, but actually a part of the way in which the organization structures itself and moves within any particular city. Just, just one quick addition to that point. I was reading a paper out of a professor at MIT a couple days ago that suggests more diverse companies are 41% more likely to be profitable than less diverse companies workforce-wise. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you.